explain your new movie that's coming out is Cut to the Chase. Um, and I want to just quickly talk about, you had three movies previously that you also wrote, directed, and starred in. And mm -hmm. those were Outside Sales, Weather Girl, and Six Month Rule. And those were romantic comedies. Right. So now, why, why the change in genre? This action crime? Yeah, you know, I, my last three films, romantic comedies, right? And a lot of that reasoning is just budgetary, you know? It's like I'm doing low-budget movies. My first movie was uh, $80,000, then Weather Girl was under half a million, and then Six Month Rule was a million dollars. And uh, slowly growing in budget, but always, you know, being a small budget movie. Um, it's basically because I didn't think I could do anything else because it's it's way easier to shoot a kiss than it is to shoot an explosion. And like I just thought that that was like really my only option between like I could do a, a family drama or something but no action, no thriller, no anything like that. And then I had this experience actually with Paul Osborne uh, making Favor uh, which I starred in with his actor uh, Patrick Day and this was my first experience doing a micro-budget movie. I, I believe the budget was under $50,000 for that. And and it was intense, and it had thrills, and it had a real noir kind of feel to it. Um, and then I have friends, uh, a filmmaker named Zach Forsman, that made a uh, an action film called Down and Dangerous last year. And I was just amazed at what he was able to do on the budget. So I was inspired by these other filmmakers who were doing really risky micro-budget things and pulling off these really uh, uh, amazing films. So seeing those guys, I'm like, it, it is possible. So I set out to, to do that and uh, basically built the entire film around being able to do it for this budget. So now you play a bad guy this time, whereas before <laughs> you're always the, the lovable either bachelor or in some type of a, a love entanglement. Yeah. So why, why the change? Why write that role for yourself? Well. Part of it was budgetary. Uh, part of it was like, you know, in doing an action thriller kind of thing, one of the biggest risks is, you know, harming somebody. Like, you know, some, one of my actors getting hurt. And uh, so I built the script around this one guy who gets all the bad stuff happening to him. <laughs> so I know it's going to be me. And, you know, if I get hurt, I won't sue myself. Um, <laughs> but that was part of it. But also, like, I really like the idea of like a... A John McClane kind of character who's like, you know, he's an action hero, he's the, he, but he's a real guy, right? He, he's fallible and human and, and I, with Max, I just wanted to create somebody who was kind of an anti-hero, who was um, stepping up to being a man really for the first time in his life, you know, uh, for the only reason he ever would to protect his little sister who's always watching out for him, you know what I mean? I, I like the characters that are flawed, and uh, they're also more fun to play. <laughs> right. Now, you shot the film, right, in Bossier City, Louisiana? In Shreveport. Or, yeah. or Shreveport, I'm sorry. Okay, that's, where, that's where you're from, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I grew up in Bossier City, and uh, Shreveport is our big city right next door, so we shot the whole film there, and it was, it was really awesome, like doing a film in my hometown, uh, because the entire community really got together to support it. I mean, like, uh, you know, I basically I wrote all the acting parts for people I knew in the theater community and the, the acting community in Shreveport and we built all the locations around locations I knew we could access but it was great like people would lend us their cars you know for show cars they would show up and do extra work literally people made lunch for us so we didn't have to spend money on lunch <laughs> it was really cool and like uh, we just did a big like premiere in Shreveport 
just kind of to thank the, thank the city, you know, for all the support they gave us. Red carpet, tuxedos, the whole thing, and it, it went really well. So we've got a big support team down in Louisiana that can't wait for this movie to come out. Did you have any moments where, let's suppose you were between takes or something, and it hit you like, oh my gosh, first of all, I didn't even know if I could make it in LA or New York, and now I'm back in my hometown. Like, some kind of weird like thing hit you? Yeah, I mean, it, there's nothing more surreal than being on set and shooting a, a big fight scene and you know having the blood and the thing and the, we have you know guns with blanks going off we've got a stunt coordinator standing right offside you know making sure i'm okay and i look up and my mom is helping out with craft service over there <laughs> you know what i mean it's it's incredibly surreal it's like these worlds colliding you know um but yeah it, it's i i also saw, shot six month rule in shreveport for a bigger budget so I've had both sides of like getting to come home and getting to bring a production there. And uh, Cuts to the Chase is much more a homemade movie. Like Shreveport is all over that thing, you know. Six Month Rule, we kind of built it in L.A. and then brought it down, <laughs> you know. Right, okay, yeah, maybe I'm, yeah. Get, I'm getting confused because I remember seeing it and there were a lot of city shots, so I wasn't sure. Yeah. But, so I was just wondering how that was because, I mean, so many people leave their little town and... and they go to do bigger things and sometimes there's people that want them to succeed and then there's others that kind of like you know maybe they're enviously living through them thinking well i don't know if i could do that so no, absolutely that's absolutely true back. and yeah. that, that happens you know happens with me i think it happens with everybody you know mm -hmm. you, you've got people who are you know uh staunch supporters of you whatever you do and then you have people that are just waiting for you to fail and i mean i think the more success you have the more you create the more that that's a very real balance but like you know haters gonna hate yeah well, i can't <laughs> imagine anyone hating on you well that's very nice of you to say yeah I, but i i know that there there's that dark energy out there that sure. you never know but anyway but so yeah i just thought it was interesting that that you would come back then it sounds like a second time then, uh -huh. to to make these films and just probably it's got to be a little bit surreal because you know so many people end up going back home and then just getting the regular job and never right. setting foot on a movie set again and now you're making a second I take, film. I take the LA job and I just go <laughs> or take it home. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean people don't have temporary layovers. Right. I think everybody that's in some form of show business has had a layover or two, sure. however long they last. But I think it's just interesting. Yeah, that's what must have been cool. And it sounds like your mom is a very big supporter of you. She's great. She was like, my mom has always been a huge supporter of mine. But like one of the coolest things was we were having a production meeting in Shreveport. It was our day two of pre-production. And um, my mom asked if she could come to the meeting. And I'm like, sure, you know, why not? And so we're there and she contributed a whole lot about organizational stuff and, you know, and by the end of the meeting, Mindy Bledsoe, who's my producer, said, can we bring your mom on? I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, in what way? She's like, I don't know, production coordinator? <laughs> and I'm like, That's if she cool. wants to, do you want to? And she's like, well, I'd love to. That sounds really fun. <laughs> so my mom was our production coordinator nice. and she's very organized. Oh, cool. Well, I can see where you get it from because I know <laughs> that you are very organized. You know, we've talked before. Yeah. And um, we've talked about you know emailing and calling and mm -hmm. and you seem very detail oriented in that way and that's that's I try to be well you know I mean you know as as well as anybody that like especially the movie business it's all details you know you, you you let one thing slide and you know there goes your marketing for the movie you know what I mean 
It's like, uh, how come there aren't more nuclear accidents? You know, redundancy over and over and over again. You know, it's like, are we sure that the DCP has arrived? The DCP has arrived. Do they also have a Blu-ray player? Okay, I have a Blu-ray in my backpack. If that fails, then we have this, you know, and like, right. that's life. And the day you don't show up with the Blu-ray, that's the day your DCP, you know, dies. What have you learned about genre in regards to selling a movie? Oh, interesting. I. You know, I spent, I went to uh, American Film Market this year uh, to, you know, help promote Cut to the Chase and whatnot. And I learned a lot of interesting things that, like, the, uh, the, the genre film, you know, obviously is, is kind of king in that international market kind of thing. I've always, I've always struggled with, um, because my movies are romantic comedies, romantic comedies tend not to really translate into international sales. Uh, Comedy is different, you know, I, I, most people who go to romantic comedies, especially foreign, want to see the famous people fall in love, you know, and, and you know, my people are relatively not famous, so, um, but yeah, the, the horror films and thrillers and crime are really doing well internationally, you know, um, it, domestically I feel like it's really about what the movies, what the response to the movie has been, like at, at film festivals and whatnot, like a good movie can get distribution in the states no matter what genre it is i think um but if you want to make the money back international is really the goal you know i'm wondering when you were at F afm excuse me what kind of conversations did you hear because sometimes you can pick up really interesting stuff that you can relate to yourself right when you're in a lobby at a reception something anything that was interesting that kind of mirrored the sentiment of all the filmmakers that were there I mean, the funny thing about AFM is it, it's not really for filmmakers at all. Like, there weren't many there. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to go is because I'd never spent a long time there, you know, and because I'm also a producer and I have a production company, I was interested in, in how it works a little bit more. And I think the most interesting thing to me is how kind of antiquated it is. Um, like, when we talked last time about the six-month rule, the business was completely different then, right? Like that was four years ago. And now digital has totally usurped all the things we were trying to do then. And it was on the cusp then, but like now it is all about this digital distribution and the DVD companies and the digital companies have kind of, they're now have a system worked out where people are getting paid. Like back then there was a problem with distributors actually paying the filmmakers. And now like there's a system happening again now. AFM, seems to have this this old school uh you know like huckster kind of like all right i got a horror movie over here and i got a, <laughs> a, a religious movie over here you want to we'll package them we'll get five of these da, da, da. all right and it's all built on these really old models of like dvd and like you know here's our territory and i don't know it, it's funny i i don't know how much i learned except for it's just all a shell and peanuts game is that Shell and peanuts? I don't know. Shell, shell game. Uh, <laughs> moving the things around and like packaging. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's something, yeah. you know? And, and, and things have changed since we last sat down um, in, in so many ways. And I know you, you did screen both the six-month rule in, in L.A. And, uh, and New York. Mm -hmm. And so is that something that you plan to do with Cut to the Chase, you're gonna... Yeah, a little bit different. Uh, Cut to the Chase is gonna open in New York February 28th, and then we uh, start a run in Shreveport, Louisiana on March 3rd, and then we are here in LA for a big premiere March 6th. So uh, we're really focusing more on these big one-night 
premiere things and because we come out on VOD March 7th. So all of this is kind of working as our marketing wraparound to aim at March 7th, whereas six month rule, we did about nine cities across the country. And what I learned from that is spreading yourself thin like that and then all you're trying to do is sell a thousand tickets as opposed to putting it out into the world you know, and doing one marketing push and getting that one marketing push to everybody and saying, okay, now all of you can watch the movie. I mean, it's just, there's only so much effort and money you can spend, you know, and it's better to spend the money for me on like one big marketing push so everyone knows it's out in the world as opposed to I'm trying to fill a theater in Oklahoma City, you know, which is something we did. We, you know, would go to a city, we kind of did this like, kind of like a rock and roll tour, you know, where I would go and do a Q&A afterwards, but then it's like I know, I don't know, 15, 20 people in Oklahoma City. I have to get them to bring their friends and then to, and then we have to do advertising and then, and then at the end of the day, what happened? You know, I made $800 in Oklahoma City. I probably spent at least that much getting there and marketing it and to what end, you know? To me, the most important thing now is telling people that we're in theaters, but then saying, Get it, get it at home. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's a, it's a different way of looking at it. But uh, but yeah, New York in six month rule, we did a full week run in New York and we got there and I was excited and it was like gonna be great and opening night packed. Everybody I knew in New York, all their friends were there. We had this great party. It went amazing. The next day, it was a beautiful day outside. I think three people came to the movie the next day. And it's just like, I was just, spinning my wheels trying to get people in there, you know? And when the point is letting people in the world buy the movie and telling them about it, you know? You gotta get out there and tell them about it or they don't know. Well, one advantage to you having traveled and done the sort of like, you know, Blaine Weaver, you know, tour was that people got to meet you and you, yeah. you probably built a good fan base that way, you know? Absolutely, I mean, it really is like, I feel like the reason I keep getting to make movies is because, uh, not to, it sounds pretentious, but it's a brand kind of thing. Like, it's like, I am my movie. So I go and I meet filmmakers and I do the festival circuit and uh, I build this community of people who are supportive or interested or even just know who I am. And, and that leads to an audience for the next film. Um, and I, like, I love doing that. I love traveling and I, you know, there are people that hate hotel life. I am not that guy. I love going and being there for the movie and then talking to people afterwards and getting people's responses. And um, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. Yeah, I could see that being your strong suit as well. And I, I could see that be why people would come out. I know it is hard to, f that week run yeah. is really costly and it's very hard to get, that first night, sure it's a party, but once that first night is over is, is the real struggle. Right, so we're sticking for the, just the one night this Yeah, time. that makes, you know? sense. That makes uh, sense. Save some money. Uh, we'll, we have red carpets at both New York and LA. We can, you know, we can do it more if we only have the one night as opposed to the, the whole week of, you know, like six month rule. Um, I let the distributor at the time talk me into, you know, huge ads in the New York Times. He's like, this is how you open a movie in New York. And I listened and I'm like, all right, spent a bunch of money to get this full page ad, you know, for the weekend and the, the weekend section. And then on Saturday when it's empty, I'm like, you know, I could have spent one third of that money on an ad on IndieWire, you know, that we're in New York, just letting people know. And here's the pre-sale link sure. to, to buy the movie. I didn't do that. I was following a model from 20 years ago. And that's, that's what this movie has been for me, is saying, okay, 
We've done the classic theatrical model. What's wrong with that? What do we need to do today, 2017, to get this movie in as many homes as possible? Going back to what you said about um, romantic comedies being tougher to sell overseas, how about Cut to the Chase? Because some of that comedy that may be lost in the translation of the, the different languages. Yeah. Well, I mean, so far, so good. Like, Asia seems to like us. So um, we, we've sold a couple of uh, territories, and, like, I think that this domestic rollout is going to help that as well. But, like, you know, they like the action. They like Lance Hendrickson, who plays our, uh, our big bad guy. And uh, so the response has been really good. I'm just hoping that we can keep the momentum going. We're hoping you can give us a brief profile of how you found distribution for each of your films from Outside Sales, Weather Girl, Six Month Rule, and now with Cut to the Chase. Sure. Uh, outside Sales was, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. That, that's a very important <laughs> thing about uh, my first movie. Um, we, you know, I, I was doing well acting-wise, and like this was the, the movie that I, I sold my house to finance. I, you know, had done this uh, cartoon for Disney for where I do the voice of Peter Pan, and I made a good amount of money, and I bought a house, and then uh, I sold the house to finance my first movie, and we had it, and we traveled all over the film festival circuit and spent all this money, and then came out the other side and was like, all right, I'm broke, I don't have distribution for the movie, and, you know, what do I do? So that one was crazy. It, it took about a year of just like talking to everybody. And finally we landed with this company and got a DVD deal, um, which again, this was when the, the system wasn't working very well. So it was like, we got a DVD deal, no money up front, but they threw us a big release party. And that was pretty much it. But the movie was out. That was an important thing. Uh, Weather Girl was a way better experience. Way, Weather Girl got into the Slamdance Film Festival. Um, we had some cool actors. We had Mark Harmon and Caitlin Olson and Trisha Kelly, who was on The New Adventures of Old Christine, and they all came out to Park City with us, and that helped promote the movie, and we got a distribution deal right there, and then we sold to Lifetime, which was really where the money came in, so that paid back all of our investors. Um, and then we had this huge international deal where they never paid us. So... We had to sue this company in order to get them to settle for one-fifth of what they owed us. Again, the system just didn't work. It was the kind of thing where people, the distributors, not all of them, but a lot of them would just refuse to pay until you sued them because they knew you didn't have any money. So if you sued them and got that far, then they would settle for like one-fifth of what they owe you, which is, you know, a lot of the... Politically, this kind of business is being talked about a lot right now, and uh, in my experience, it happens all the time, of like the little guy screaming and yelling about, where's the money that you owe me, and then them saying, no, 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 all right, here, I'll pay you one-fifth, and you'll be happy to have it. Luckily, that's happening less now with distributors, uh, but that was Weather Girl. So Weather Girl, we made all of our money back, but before we got into profit, we had this problem with our international distributor. Uh, Six-month rule. Um, we premiered at the Austin Film Festival. Film Buff came to us. Uh, film Buff uh, is Synetic's kind of little brother in the indie film world. 
and uh, they put us out iTunes VOD and everything like that. It was a great experience. We're still out there with Film Buff, six month rule, check it out. And uh, cut to the chase, um, finished the film and we've just been traveling film festival wise and like having conversations and we met with 108 Media and they, they seem down with the movie and we certainly speak the same language and uh, they're bringing us out March 7th, so I'm excited. So it sounds like film festivals are still very important for you to not only show the film and, and you know win awards and, and, and have that those laurels there, but meet people and do sort of again the meet and greet and that that's part of the following for the next one. Totally. Absolutely for me. I mean, like we kickstarted this film, you know, uh, and I raised $20,000, you know, uh, and that's from, you know, people that I've met along the way who, you know, give a damn about me making another film. And like a lot of that is film festival people, but I'll say this as well. I meet filmmakers who I learn from who become assets to me, like, you know, uh, Paul Osborne, who cast me in favor, we met at the first film festival I ever went to for my first movie, Outside Sales. Went there, met Paul, became great friends. Now, like, I'm using his house for this interview. You know what I mean? Like, he uh, uh, is a great asset. Like, Zach Forsman met him, you know, at uh, Oklahoma, I believe, and got to see his movie, and he's been an inspiration to me. And, like, you learn by surrounding yourself by talented people who push each other and, uh, and give notes to each other. And like, you know, I, I can't tell you how many really great writers I can just send my script to and they'll read it and they'll make it better by telling me what, you know, suggestions, what they would do. Or, and that's a huge asset. So also you're building a uh, fan base for you and your movies, which I think is super important in the indie world because if you don't have Tom Cruise, you know, you have to reach an audience. And if people have a vested interest because they've shook your hand, it's just like politics, you know? It's like, it's harder to vote against somebody if you've actually looked them in the eye, you know what I mean? Um, so I like going to the places, I like supporting the movie. Um, I have a weird thing about like, being worried about my movie playing when I'm not there. Like, what's, well, what if something goes wrong? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's gonna go wrong? It's a movie, it's technical. Any anyways. Uh, but yeah, I, I love the traveling and the film festivals, and I think it's good on many, many levels. I think it's great, too, that you have a track record. A lot of people tap out after one or two. This is not an easy thing, and you don't always make money back, and sometimes there's debt, and there's all these different things. A lot of people are like, you know what, I'm out, this is it. And I think it's great that you have this track record, and I'm sure it's not easy, but I think that shows a lot of people that they can invest in you because you're willing to show up again. Sure, and uh, like I, I think that's true, and I think there there's lots of times where I didn't know if I was going to be able to make another movie. My my first one, Outside Sales, I was so far in debt when that film finished the festival circuit. I, I went back to a bar, was working six days a week, was broke, didn't have anything, didn't have distribution for the movie. It was a really low time, and um, then I had this script, Weather Girl, that I sent to the, the lead actress, Trisha Kelly, who had just been in Outside Sales as my lead actress. And she read the script, and I was asking her for notes. Um, being a man, writing a female character, you know, I, she's one of my favorite actresses, so I'm like, take a look, tell me what you think. And she's like, I love this movie, I wanna make this movie. And I tried to talk her out of it. I'm like, no, you don't wanna make a movie, I'm telling you, like, I'm so far in debt, I'm, you know, and she's like, well, I, we won't do that. But so we partnered up and we raised the money to make the movie and like I was out of the restaurant world again, you know, but it's like, it, it's funny, it, uh, it's cyclical and it's 
always a risk, and uh, I love having a, a... I'll tell you, one of the easiest things about Cut to the Chase for me was nobody was challenging my being there. You know what I mean? And most of your career as a filmmaker or a writer or an actor is like convincing people that you are right where you're supposed to be, you know? Like Six Month Rule, we had an all LA cast in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I was the writer, director, and star, you know? And like, I felt like I was proving myself every day, not just to my crew, not just to the talent, but you know, to everyone, you know? And so you'd get a little ground and people would trust you. And then, you know, third week was easy. First two weeks was really hard, right? This movie, there was never that. People were on board from the very beginning, and that's just because of the track record. It's just because they're like, he's done this before, I like that movie, we trust him. And not having to gain that faith, it just makes everything so much easier. I wanna go back to the story about selling your house and then working in the bar and writing the script during the day. I'd yeah. love to hear that story. Yeah, so uh, well, my best friend growing up is this guy, Brandon Barrera. And uh, we, uh, he's, he's the big business savvy guy and I'm the big creative guy. And um, we, he convinced me to buy, go in with him and buy this house. So we bought a house in Hollywood. Uh, this was, you know, I had money from Peter Pan and some other acting jobs. Um, and we had this house and then I got into making this movie and I'm like, Brandon, how about we do a production company, sell the house, finance the movie? He said, sure, let's do it. We financed the movie. Um, Two years later, I'm broke. I learned about something called capital gains tax. Should know about that before you sell a house, kids. Uh, so I got hit with just dozens and dozens of thousands of dollars in debt. I, I think it was 80,000 at one point. And uh, you know, I was worried about having to, I had the LLC for the movie and we had this production company and I went to work and I, was, I moved into this apartment that I call the hovel and uh, lived there, worked every single night. Uh, where, where were you working? I was working at the Village Idiot on Melrose and Martell. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a great bar, and these, the, the guys who own the bar, they had just sunk everything they had into opening this bar. And uh, I, I would come into work every morning to pick up my tips, like right as they opened. And one day my boss was like, uh, Blaine, tell me the truth. Do you have a drug problem? And I'm like, what? Like, what do you What do you mean? He's like, nobody needs 80 bucks so bad that they get here at 9 a.m. He's like, what's the deal? And I told him, I just I just spent everything I have and a lot that I don't to make this movie. And he's like, well, I just did that for this restaurant. So we were in this same situation exactly, and we kind of became great friends. They would always work work me, let me do uh, overtime to get a little extra money, and very frowned on in the restaurant world, but they, you know, were, were such supporters. Um, ironically, not ironically, we, we've become very close, me and those guys, and the after party for the LA premiere of Cut to the Chase will be at the Village Idiot, which... Oh, that's great. I love synchronicity. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was writing every day. I'd get up early in the morning and I'd write, and I wrote four or five scripts that year, the year of the hovel. Um, and <laughs> like, it was literally almost exactly a year because right as the lease was running out, Weather Girl came together. Um, I was able to get out of there. I got paid a proper fee to direct, you know, and I got to direct Mark Harmon and Caitlin Olson and John Cryer and Jane Lynch. It was like, it was a totally different, you know, experience for me. And like, I did, there was a time where I didn't think that would ever happen, but it was just tenacity. And if I hadn't have been in the hovel, I don't know if I would have been as writing as much as I was. And I don't know if I would have done Weather Girl. So 
you know, it, it, I guess it paid off. So that being sort of in this really uncomfortable place or a place that you just felt like this is not what I wanted for my life. Yeah. Pushed you, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, like, what's funny is I, I have a weird outlet to it, I guess. But like when, when young people ask me, you know, uh, should I pursue this, this acting, this writing, you know, uh, directing, anything in this business, really, I, I usually say we well, have to look at it like I'm being an artist. You're choosing an artist lifestyle. Right? If you're choosing to be famous, that's, you're not, that's not reality. You know, you have to look at it and say, am I willing to be broke? Am I willing to have to work, you know, several jobs in order to chase this dream, you know? And if you're okay with that, then this is the place for you. You should absolutely do it. If you're not, I bet you there's lots of different options. Know what I mean? So, like, I, I kind of, I try to take it with a grain of salt, just like that's, that down spiral led to Weather Girl, which is one of the high points of my career. So. so let's talk about when, I don't know how late you worked at the bar in terms of hours, like 2 oh, a.m. Yeah, sure. and you're cleaning up and so mm -hmm. it's like maybe 3 or whatever you're getting home. Yeah. You're getting up early in the morning. How much sleep are you getting? Oh, sleep, sleep especially those days, didn't really work into it. And like, cause the bar had just opened and it, like the, the new staff was always hanging out and drinking very late and then getting up early in the morning. Yeah. It, uh, sleep didn't really work into it very, very much. Um, but like, you know, an, another funny thing about this life is I need to be able to audition, you know, and take meetings Monday through Friday. So I'm working. Those are my, like, I have to be available, right? So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, holidays, I'm working. So where most people have the day off, that's when I go in, you know, and, uh, because if LA is closed, that's the only time I can literally wait tables all day long or whatever, you know. But it was a rough time. It was a rough time. I don't, I don't recommend it. So how are you having the discipline to write, especially when writing just takes this, this like concentrated effort and then when you're in another world that's maybe a little more chaotic, I think it's hard to harness that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's kind of like, to me, it's just how bad do you want it? You know, how bad do you, do you want this thing? It's like, if I can't get up and write in the morning, then why am I waiting tables to begin with? You know, I could, you know, I have a college degree. I can go out and get some job where, you know, I'm on salary and, you know, I won't be able to go to auditions. I won't be able to have meetings. I certainly won't have time to write. I'm doing this so that I can write. So if I'm not writing, then all that time waste is wasted, you know, at the, at the, the night job. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It does. Like the two things feed each other. I think the more I hate my job, the more I get up in the morning and write. <laughs> any, any bad customer situations that just really fueled you and you were able to just put them into the script? Oh man. For sure. Weather Girl is literally, <laughs> literally about a girl in the entertainment industry. She's, you know, a weather person. Uh, and she quits her job and then can't get rehired because she quits it very publicly and she has to go wait tables. It's like, if that's not, it's literally what happened to me. Like I made this movie, I was a director, actor, hotshot, couldn't sell it, I'm back to waiting tables and I'm waiting on people that, you know, just uh, six months beforehand, I would have hired. So yeah, like all of those experiences fed into, you know, what Weather Girl was about to me. Why? Now, I just want to go back to the house thing. So when you sold the house, do you mind if I ask what year this was? 
Uh, uh, 2005, I think. Oh, okay. So it was on an upswing. Yeah, it was yeah. Really well. I got out yeah. of it at just, right yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Like that would have changed everything. Like if I had owned that place a little bit longer, and then the bubble happened, I certainly wouldn't have been able to finance my movie. Right. And did you like living there? It was a yeah. nice place. Okay. It was great. It's probably a hard decision to make, wasn't it? No. No, was not at all. I was young and impetuous, and you know, it was like I was making a movie. It was very exciting. I was not. The, the the hardest thing about making independent film at 40 years old is I know too much, you know? Like, I'm <laughs> more scared now than I ever was in my 20s or even mid-30s, you know? It's like, now I know that I'm risking things. Then I'm just following my dream and doing cool stuff. Like, I, I love being a part of this club of directors and producers who have gone out and made something they've gone they've taken a blank sheet of paper and now there's a movie that's there it's a small organization of people you know who who have the chutzpah and the you know ability you know to, to even get it done much less if it's good um so i i love it it's a, it's a very brave and you know exciting group of people i think too people are more forgiving of an 18 year old or 19 year old making a mistake Sure. Yeah. Than they are of someone over 30. I think that that's another scary thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's much less romantic, you know, when, you know, uh, a 40 year old blows it, you know, 25 year old, you're just learning. Right? Sure. Sure. So, I think people are softer uh, so on them. I just yeah. have to not blow it. That's the key. <laughs> Were there ever times when let's suppose things weren't going that well, that you regretted selling the house? and trying to make this movie, knowing that you'd come from a position where you were doing well in that sense. You have property right. in LA, that's, that's not hard. That's, excuse me, that's very hard to do. But, and then you're in the hovel. Right. Was there times when you said, was this all worth it? No, no, because like, and like not to say that there aren't times where I haven't thought, well, that I've made bad choices but not when it comes to the movies. The movies to me are like, you know, I'm not married, I don't have kids, uh, and I, most of my friends would be very offended if I compared my movie to them having kids. But to me, that's what it is. Like, once it's come to fruition, uh, I would never regret anything that led to Weather Girl or Six Month Rule or Cuts to the Chase existing. Um, it, because it's not just mine, you know? that That's... One of my favorite things about directing and, uh, you know, being the person that has to go out and raise the money, which is not something I enjoy, of course, few people do, but I build a team, you know, and then they count on me. There's this paternal feeling that you have towards not only the movie itself, but the people who helped make it. You owe them something, you know, it's like you put your sweat and art into making this feature better. And uh, it's my job to protect that and to get it all the way through to the, to the finish line. And like, I could never say, oh man, I wish I hadn't ma- made Outside Sales because like Outside Sales was the movie that made me a director. You know, and the whole reason I became a director was a bad experience I had on this film that I, called Manic. That I wrote Manic with, with another writer and I really didn't like the director. And it was a really rough shoot for me. And, but it made me think, if this guy can do it, I can direct, you know? And, like, I don't know if I would have become a director if I hadn't have had that bad experience on that, on that shoot. But I did, and now here I am, you know? Right. Four so, features yeah. under my belt and, you yeah. know, eight produced screenplays. And, like, That's excellent. I, 
I don't regret it. Like there are things that I wish, you know, would spin a different way, but like who doesn't? Not that it was easy to raise money because I'd only directed one feature before and that feature had not made its money back. So I didn't have much of a track record. How has experience impacted your financing movies? Well, um, it's a good question. Um, I think every movie is different when it comes to financing. You know, it's like some movies lend themselves more to, um, like Weather Girl was very user-friendly. You know, it was a romantic comedy. Uh, it was easy, it didn't offend anybody, you know? Um, so, not that it was easy to raise money because I'd only directed one feature before and that feature had not made its money back. So I didn't have much of a track record. But uh, we had, Jane Lynch was a friend of Trisha O'Kelly's and she had agreed to star in it. Once Jane Lynch is in something, everybody wants to be in it. So we had a really great cast built before we had any money, you know, uh, which is rare. And I've never seen that happen on anybody's movie. You know, I think Jane Lynch <laughs> being the linchpin uh, of that, that movie was very specific to how that movie got financed. Um, with Six Month Rule, we found an investor who believed in me. Like, you know, me and my business partner uh, went to the same high school that he went to, and now he's an incredibly uh, successful businessman. And like, I was pitching Six Month Rule all over the place, and like, I don't even know if he read the script. He believed in what we were doing, and you know, was interested in movies. So he financed that, and then, Cut to the Chase was this great amalgam of just like five thousand dollars here, five thousand dollars here, until and we till we raised you know uh, over a hundred grand. All people who were just voting on or betting on us, and that was a really personal thing. Like people just wanted a Shreveport movie from a Shreveport boy, and <laughs> and, and they got it. So everyone is different, though. But the key, the only consistent is that you have to take every meeting, you have to talk to everybody because you never know where that money's gonna come from and it's always a surprise to me. Like, I, we had an experience where I had a driver for a movie that I was on and he drove me to set every day. Very cool guy, liked me very much. At the end of the movie, he's like, I have a friend that has connection to money. And I'm like, you should talk to my business partner. And we were ended up, Secret Identity financed this other movie with the friend of the driver. Like, who would have thought? But it comes from all over the place. But you, you gotta always be ready. And sometimes you have to ask the awkward question, will you give me money? <laughs> right, and so with crowdfunding, it's good for, it sounds like, part of it, but especially in this landscape, it sounds like it might be tougher now. I think it'd be tough to, I mean, you know, we raised 20 grand and it was, hard. I mean, it's work. Every single day you got to be out there and uh, like you got to be hitting people over the head with it all the time. And uh, Paul Osborne always says that I don't hit hard enough, but I do. I hit really hard and I was able to raise $20,000, but it was by hook or by crook. I pulled that money, you know, and you know, from, from a ton of really great people. Uh, but I don't know how much more you can get without some some kind of hook, you know what I mean? Like uh, the perfect sweater, whatever those things that make a million dollars. I don't know how they do it, but uh, I would love to get in on that. <laughs> I think I probably wrote that in five weeks of just getting up and like, you know, hammering away at it. Um, I'll tell you one thing that also I, I think is, there's a great lesson in 
explain your IMDb shows 12 writing credits. I'm sure you've written more scripts than are I'm just sure. there. Um, but of those films, which production taught you the most about writing and why? Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, the, the, what we talked about a little bit earlier, the biggest lesson about writing is get up and do it. You know, is like, it, it is a job. You know, I, I'm the kind of guy that I like uh, a glass of wine. You know, I like some music going. That's very romantic, and I'm sure Hemingway would be very proud, but like that's really not how you get a script done or how you write uh, that many scripts. And I, I am always writing. Uh, so it's like you gotta get up, you gotta spend time with your coffee, you gotta look at it. And sometimes it's just sitting there, not being able to write anything that gets you two days later to where you are, where you can you know, answer the question and put it on paper. Uh, but I love working on all different genres. Like that's what's always fun to me is getting hired to do, you know, like a, a punch up on a kid's movie or here's a horror film or, you know, here's a, a family drama. But like, I love getting to do all of them because I love movies and it, it's, it gets boring doing the same thing over and over again. So as far as like what taught me the most, I think it was just, it's just being thrown the random here, I, I need you to do this suspense action film for me, you know? And like sometimes you'll get a finished script and you'll fix it. Sometimes you'll get a paragraph and you'll execute it, you know? And it's like, um, so I, yeah, I don't know, all of them, I guess. It's just the, the process of writing, you just get better at it. And like, I, that's something I tell young people all the time is like, you get pra better at writing the more you write. So you have to write, you know what I mean? All the time. Well, I know with Manic, you said that kind of showed you that you wanted to direct uh -huh. for the various reasons. Right. And then with Weather Girl, it sounds like being in sort in an uncomfortable situation really pushed you. How long right. did that script take, Weather Girl? That that script almost wrote itself. Like uh, when I think of like the the easiest writing experiences, that I think I probably wrote that in five weeks of just getting up and like you know hammering away at it. Um, I'll tell you one thing that. Also, I think there's a great lesson in directing your own script um, because you find in the editing room, if there are flaws in your script, in your logic, in your plot line, you will find it in editing. And it's crazy to me. It's like six-month rule. I got almost no notes on that script. That script, everybody dug that script. Like it was just one of those things, like sometimes as a writer, it's just like something will resonate. And... People just liked it. They're like, he talks a little too much, and you know. But other than that, I'm like, great. But then we got into uh, editing, and I have all of these pr structural problems. Like, he has this moment where he realizes he loves the girl twice. No, why didn't I see that? Why didn't anyone who read the script say this moment happens twice? But nobody did, you know. And like, it's made me uh, look at scripts a lot harder now, especially my own. Like. When is this moment in the movie? Like, and this has to be this special moment. It can't be duplicated. Like, because we had to move a lot of things around. I had this this great editor, Abe Levy, who helped me, you know, streamline that that story that in a in a proper world should have been streamlined on the page. Know what I mean? So with uh, Weather Girl, how much do you think you really um I don't know, I'm just I'm just trying to envision that time for you. Do you think with some of the other productions, you were more comfortable and it was harder to finish it? Um, in terms of the script? And in terms of the script, mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, I didn't have TV. <laughs> I, 
I had, <laughs> it was really, it's really depressing. I had this uh, season of The Office that I would watch over and over and over again. And so, like, I didn't really have anything to do except for sit there and, and, and write, which was the, by design, you know, I didn't get cable, I, you know, I just wanted to, to work. And it was actually easier then to write than say, you know, uh, when you're happy with a girlfriend and, you know, it's like, that's, that's the hardest time for me to write is when I'm, you know, happy and busy. When I, I just moved back from New York and I love living in New York because there's so much to do. It's hard for me to write in New York because I'm always distracted by, you know, things that are going on outside, you know, or uh, what's my roommate doing down there? You know, it sounds like he's having fun. Are you drinking beer? Let me have some beer. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, sometimes that, that, that lonely time is, it, it's actually easier, you know. So from being a bartender, I know you're probably busy making drinks and getting customers' orders, but you probably had some moments when you could see the L.A. crowd from this other perspective. Yeah. And how much did you see some of that in the patrons that went there? Even though you don't really know their personal lives right. at all and everybody's putting on this happy facade. I needed to get out of Los Angeles after Six Month Rule. Um, after Six Month Rule, I had kind of hit this... Uh, I was super saturated with Los Angeles. You know, I, I've been here for a really long time since I was 19 years old. Kid actor, went to UCLA, you know, like, uh, I've been in, in this town for a long time and I just needed out because of, I think, what you're saying. Because of, like, I saw the stereotypes, I saw the, the you know, the LA shallowness or whatever, and I saw it in me, you know, which was not good either. And uh, I just, it's not what I wanted. So I fled to New York and, um, enjoyed my time very much there uh, and I've just moved back here you know for business wise and LA is different to me now like I I have perspective you know I, I see that you know it's not the stereotypes that I was seeing you know when I was uh, when I was here before uh, I was painting my own unhappy picture of it but it's actually not that bad a place I think I've just been here too long. <laughs> sure, and I've heard the same thing about people that have been in New York oh, and had to come here. So I think it's just a change of atmosphere. Yeah, it's true. I have friends <laughs> who've lived in New York much longer than I did. You know, they're like, I'll tell them how much I love it. They'll be like, I'll try five more years. And I'm like, well, maybe you should give it a break. Maybe yeah. you should go somewhere else. That's what I did. But you're also coming here with a film yeah. that's coming out that has distribution. So I'm sure that's got to feel great. It's awesome. It's, it's a different, you're, you're coming from a different um, situation than... Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about, like, this movie business is really weird. It's really weird because it's like it has so many different levels. It's it, um, like you, you start, you got the script and you got to try to raise the money and then that's a whole thing and then you get the money and then you have to put it together and then that's the whole thing. I love being on set. Being on set is my absolute favorite. I'm the best me when I'm on set. And then you wrap and then you go into post-production, which I'm not my best me, but like it's part of it. And then you have to get the distribution and then you get to do the film festivals and now you're here. Literally, we get a link later today for the pre-sales of Cut to the Chase and then in three weeks it'll be out and everybody in America will be able to access it. And that's kind of like the end, really. Uh, I mean, we'll come out on DVD in June, so that'll be a whole nother thing that we'll deal with. But like, for all practical purposes, this journey is ending next month. And like, I'm just really excited, not for it to be over, but for this, you know, pinnacle of like, here we are, we made it to the crest, you know? Good job, everybody, what's next? 
Lane, how many screenplays have you sold? Sold? Uh, sold, I would say maybe five. Okay, five. Yeah, so something like that. Uh, I don't. I think only two of them have been made, though. You know what I mean? Like normally, I'm hired to write something, and then it it gets produced that way, uh, where they have a very specific plan for what's going to happen to it. Um, yeah, very few. I've got specs that are out there all over the place. You know, they just float around, and I've got this great. I think it's great script I, that I really love about uh, rodeo, and I've got this other script about. Uh, politics kind of like a Casablanca set in politics and uh, like they've both been out there and people love them and they just kind of float waiting for you know lightning to strike and the movie to take off <laughs> well how did you sell your first screenplay uh, dumb dumb luck um, I think I think as far as selling goes I think you would count manic as a sell because uh, Michael Bacall and I wrote that we were roommates at the time and uh, we wrote the script together, and then we went to try to get it made with each of us in the lead roles. Like we basically, I had done this cowboy movie uh, that Tommy Lee Jones directed, and I played Matt Damon's little brother. And this was I was 18, and we were in the middle of West Texas, Alpine Texas, population like 32, and so. Matt Damon had to hang out with me because otherwise I'd just be sitting in my Motel 6 by myself and he's too <laughs> nice a guy for that. So uh, I got to pal around with this guy who was, you know, every free moment was working on this script with his buddy, you know, like over the phone they were exchanging faxes and stuff and I got to read an early draft of Goodwill Hunting and I'm like, you know, this guy's great. Like this is what I want to do. I want to write my own stuff just like Matt's doing. And so I started working on a script and, you know, my best buddy and I collaborated and uh, so we finished this movie and then we wanted to get it made and we ended up attaching this director and then IFC came in I guess bought the script for like a dollar you know something like that like literally like here's a dollar we now own the script blah 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 and uh, but IFC didn't want me to act in it they wanted a bigger name so uh, I agreed to take a smaller part and they brought in this little-known actor named Joseph Gordon-Levitt to play my part. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be replaced by somebody, you really want it to be Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, but he did a great job, I think. Anyways, that was the first one, and it was dumb luck. Like, I still don't know how that movie came together. It's like Mike's manager also represented this director who had ties with a distribution deal and pulled the financing together in some way. But, uh, but that was it. And then we went to Sundance in that movie. So... Not overnight, but seemingly, I went from, you know, a uh, guy from commercials and the voice of Peter Pan, who's now a screenwriter at Sundance. And, uh, yeah, that was it. And then I went straight from that to, like, writing for other people and getting hired to do, you know, touch-ups and punch-ups and, you know, make things work. <laughs> How many screenplays would you say you've written total? whether they've been sold or whether they're floating out there? Well, if you don't count the ones I wrote in my childhood, I wrote a really great uh, movie called The Star Team, which is in no way derivative of Star Wars, uh, but it might be a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I started writing scripts when I was a kid, and I would, you know, go to shoot them and get about halfway through and lose interest. But uh, as, a, as an adult, as, since Manic, I've probably written, jeez, uh, 30, 40 Probably 40, something like that. 41. That sounds right. Okay. I, I mean, there's been months where I've written a script in 
15 days because that's what was required in the job, you know, and then I have had scripts that took me three years to get through. So always a, a, depending on what it is and what the job is. And most of these um, came from relationships. I mean, it seems like you knew someone who knew someone and, and that's how some. Yeah. I mean, basically, jeez, uh, which the, when we got distribution, we were working with this producer named Stephen LaRue, Stephen LaRue uh, for outside sales. Stephen LaRue knew this producer named Mike Elliott. Mike Elliott hired to me to, no, Mike Elliott bought a script for me uh, called Teach uh, and then hired me to write. And like, you know, that's how it happens actually. Like I'll do something or someone will buy something or option something and then say, well, can you fix this script for me? And that's really how it works. So I have like a handful of creatives who uh, have me on speed dial you know, and like, I'm happy to jump in and, you know, fix their scripts. Because we've had a lot of writers ask us, you know, if I'm coming to LA from either overseas or another state, how do I get these contacts? Yeah. And it sounds like almost by maybe even the acting world, it sounds like that you built this creative yeah. Rolodex. I know, Rolodex, I'm really dating myself with that word. <laughs> <laughs> no one I never would have thought Rolodex. twice. I, I think yeah, we, okay. we can both date ourselves there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and the, there's the, my career is so strange. Like, I am not the archetypal, I've got, I'm a writer, I'm with CAA, and CAA gets me the meetings, and I come in and pitch. It's like, that's never really been how my career works on any level, you know? It's like, the, the lead roles I've gotten in films have been phone calls, you know? I, they've not been auditions. Um, I, the auditions are the smaller things that are, you know, peppered into my resume. But, like, the, the things that changed where I was in my career were all, always phone calls. Always like, Blaine, I want you to do this thing for you. Blaine, I wrote this part for you, you know? Uh, and the same thing with writing. Um, like, the, the stuff, the, the best paying jobs, the jobs that have moved me in an to a higher echelon have always been like, okay, this guy's gonna call you in five minutes, he's a good friend of mine, I told him that you're great, don't blow the interview, get the job. And I get the job, you know? It's, I mean, it's all who you know is what they say, but I think in my career, it's more than it is in most people's. <laughs> I don't know why. Would you say though that um, a writer should even take, uh, well, I, I mean, it sounds like such a, a traditional route, you know, get an agent, do all, yeah. you know, you were talking about antiquated before with distribution and right. stuff. So it sounds like because you knew a bunch of creative people and you were also acting and doing auditions and all that, that it really helped to form these people that would call you because they knew they could trust you. And that's yeah. not an easy thing here. So for someone that's new coming here as, an, as a writer, what would you recommend? Because we get a lot of questions like that and we don't always know what to tell them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like I've never had any luck with the whole like sending a cover letter or like, you know, here's a pitch of my script. Um, every agent I've ever gotten has been through a connection, you know? Uh, so I think it's about getting into that world in whatever way that you can. I, if it was an actor, I would be like, take acting classes, you know? join a theater company. Um, I, I think it's not different with writers. I'm just not sure exactly what that organization is. You know, like right. there are clubs, there are, you know, uh, the Blacklist has this, you know, uh, website that you can become a member of, send your scripts in, they'll they'll read it and give notes and stuff like that. But like, be, be a writer, you know? Tell people you're a writer. Go to places where writers go. You know what I mean? I mean, there are 
great things that WGA offers, these amazing things. Now, a lot of people can't get in if they're not WGA, but there are things that you can go and buy tickets to and go to places that, you know, successful writers go and meet those people because those are the people that can help you. Right. Yeah, it's Film festivals for... are a good idea, too. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's true. Well, I mean, for you, you're an actor and a director, and it sounds like you really get energy from being around people, but I know a lot of writers are more hermit-like. Yeah. So that's probably... I mean, idea. yeah, and I, like... I dig that, but like, that's tough because you're not going to make any contacts being hermit-like. You know, it's just like the the writing. Like, I want candles and wine before I write, but I also have to get the script done. So, like, like you know, and there also there are tons of competitions that festivals run or writing festivals. So you win a couple of those awards, that can get you some nice intros. You know, I have friends that have had some success with that. How do you structure your screenplays? Is there a certain uh, format you follow, formula? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, okay, so, you know, there are the rules. You got, you got your rules. You got your save the cat rules, your, you know, screenwriter's Bible's rules. Um, and the, the truth is, like, the, there is this kind of backlash happening right now that I think is totally legit because now every script is exactly the same. Like, if you know the structure, you can pretty much call by the moment, like when something will happen. It's like, oh no, the bottom's gonna fall out right now. And I think it's very important to know the rules. I also think that it's also important to try to break them if you can, you know what I mean? It's not a requirement on everything. Sometimes uh, the rules are your friends. Pretty much all the time, the rules are your friends. And the truth is, when you do break those little rules, those little structural uh, guidelines, People don't know why, but something's wrong, you know? And that's pretty much, that's a good, like, six-month rule has a very strange first act structure. I did it on purpose, because I wanted it to be a little different, but we made the movie that way, and then in editing, we would show the movie, and the beginning was dragging, because, you know, the inciting incident wasn't happening until 20, 25 minutes instead of 15 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Like, these rules, we know them up here. We know them in here, you know? So it's like when they're broken, something's amiss. So you have to know what you're doing when you break them, if that makes any sense. Um, it does, it does. Um, what are some of the other rules that, that you, because you said there's this backlash going on right now. I'm just curious, what, what are some of these other? Well, you know, a lot of them is, are about when things happen in the script. Like, you know, uh, it, beginning of the second act things are going this way and then oh things come crashing down but then it's going to be okay and then no they're not but then at the end it all comes back together i mean that's very vague you know like they're really more specific but uh i think the backlash from writers is that i don't want every movie to be the exact same you know structurally i i want it to be different and i think you know like there's some i'm trying to think of a good example of movies that play with that a lot but like some movies are just about the characters and it's a slice of life you know and you don't I, I'm working on a uh, a romantic comedy that is a, a about a guy who just turned 40 and I want it to be a slice of life but like in the rules he shouldn't have to go for something he should be actively pursuing something from the inciting incident until the end of the movie that gives the 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 movie a drive and a you know power and every time i'm writing especially for somebody else that's something that's very important to me but i went and watched 16 candles as kind of like cuz i'd like for this grown up movie to be kind of like 16 candles only different Nobody, there's nothing happening. There's no drive at all. It's literally just a slice of life. It's just like she's not trying to accomplish anything. 
And I love that movie. So like that's an example of like that movie would be very difficult to make right now unless you had like a John Hill, like if Cameron Crowe said, I'm gonna do this, they would let him. But like that's not a script that would sell because she's not, it's not following the rules. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I'm just trying to think back to like, the, I know the sister was like having the wedding and everybody yeah. was forgetting about All this her stuff and, is yeah, happening. Right, There's right, lots right. of action happening. Mm -hmm. But our main character, our protagonist is not forwardly driven to do anything. She's she, sulking. She's yeah. sulking. She's mm -hmm. just mad that nobody remembers her birthday. She's not trying to fix that, you know? And it, like, again, like normally it's great to have a protagonist who's actually trying to do something. Uh, but in this particular case, you can break that rule and the movie's just fine. It's just different, you know? Off camera, Blaine, you were talking about ideas being in the ether, the yeah. zeitgeist. Um, about writing something that someone else is already writing and yeah. you don't even know, they don't even know. So can well, I just talk think, about the story? I just think everything, every idea has a moment, right? Like we're all watching the same stuff. We're all, we're all on Facebook. We're seeing the same news articles. The same sensory input is coming across our, you know, our, our brains. And like you take a couple of steps as a screenwriter, you're always trying to find a hook, find a new idea, find something. And I think there's just, I think it's indefinable. I really do, but like, ideas have a moment. So, I, like, this, my story is that um, I had come up with this uh, this script, which was a supernatural thriller kind of thing, and it was a, a a jumping off from the Da Vinci Code, which was very successful at the at the moment. And so, um, I had this you know idea about like this clone of Christ idea. That was that was the the big hook, and. Uh, it's a really good script, actually. Still is. Uh, anyways, but like this little action mystery thing. So, agent flipped out. Loved it. Fantastic. Uh, this is a long time ago when we printed scripts. So I printed out, you know, 50 of the scripts. And we had to pay for that. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> but in the smaller agencies, I had to go and print 50 scripts. So anyways, feel bad for me. So I printed these 50 scripts. I take them to my agent. I drop them off. And then I go to work at this bar. And I walk into the bar. And the bartender, uh, who I work with, uh, has a Hollywood reporter on the bar. And I'm like, what's this? He's like, oh, I got hired to write a script today for this big production company. Big secret idea, secret script, and I got hired for it. Fantastic, you're out of the bar business, congratulations, you know. And I look at the article, and I think the title is interesting, and it sounds a lot like what would be the title of my movie. And I'm like, what's your movie about? And he's like, oh, this Clone of Christ thing. And, I didn't tell him the idea. The idea wasn't even his. He, he was hired to do that job. But the same day, I'm telling you, like the day that wow. I printed this stuff out to go around town was two days after he closed a deal and it came out in The Hollywood Reporter. And I think it's like that all the time. You know, you have these competing movies that are happening at the same time. We need two movies about volcanoes. That was a long time ago. Two movies about... <laughs> <laughs> I can't think, but you know, there's lots of movies like that and uh, people racing to the finish line because ideas have these moments and they're not stolen off each other. They're each of us going our own way with the sensory input that's available and we end up at the same conclusion. So the moral is then if you're going to write something, do it now, <laughs> yeah. keep it to yourself hurry. And, and get it out there. <laughs> the, the moral is you better hurry. Because uh, right. he never, you never talked to him about? No, no. Never did. And like, you know, it wasn't even his idea. He applied to get this writing position that was like an open writing position. Like um. it was top secret, but, but like, that's what my agent thought. He th thought that I had told this guy and I'm sure. like, 
this guy just went in for a meeting and they said, you know, put together a pitch for this and he did and he got the job. I could have gotten the job probably with my script had things worked out differently. Do you know what I mean? Right. But uh, I don't know. I just, I think it's funny, the coincidence. And it's not really coincidence. It's like if I tell a thousand people the same facts, you know, somebody is going to come up with the same idea that I have. Right. And also two world events. Yeah, exactly. Shaping our mindset and, and what we're kind of gearing towards. Right. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so once you knew that, when you went home that night, what was your, uh, what was life like? I mean, that like was honestly, like, I've had, you know, some crushing disappointments. That was probably in the top three. It was yeah. bad. Because, you know, like, you, you spend so much time on a script, and then, like, you give it to an agent, and the agent would be like, ah, you have any westerns? You know, I mean, that's normally what happens, is, like, you're like, ah, this script is hot. And they'll read it and be like, you know, there's a movie that just sold a couple of weeks ago that's kind of this kind of tone. What else you got? Like, well, I just spent, you know, nine months making this for you. So, like, it's incredibly disappointing to put work into something and then have it a response. Uh, like, my, the biggest criticism I've normally gotten from my agents is that um, my scripts are not uh, high concept enough. Like, I like small stories. I like s- stories with, like, four or five people, you know, and... Uh, all of my movies that I've made have really been about three people. And, uh, you know, they're ancillary characters, of course, but, like, it's a small little world. Um, and that's interesting to me. Like, I, my instinct is not to go and write Independence Day, you know, where you have, you know, a general's having this, and a reporter's over here, and, you know, then you have characters on the other side of the world. That's not my thing. So when an agent sees money signs when they look at one of my scripts... Uh, that's a rarity and something that I'm like, oh, great, fantastic. You're happy, I'm happy, let's, you know, go sell it. And then for the, the rug to be pulled out from under without the script even getting a shot, that was hard. I went to the bathroom, I got sick. I uh, freaked out on my manager basically saying, what am I going to do? You know, and he's like, what do you mean what are you going to do? You're going to go home and you're going to start writing something else. I took a couple of days, though. I had the wine the next time that I did write. Right, right, and the candles. Yeah. And the candles, yeah. I, I, I did some incense, you know, right. a calming kind of... You know. A sage clearing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. I need to clean this. You said something a moment ago about... That was brilliant, again. You can't luck into a writing job. Maybe with acting you can, just because you have that look and you could play this person or whatever, but you can't with writing. Can we talk yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, like, I think there's a... You assume that as a writer, you've put a lot of time into this. Like, you, you, you can't just get off the turnip truck and be like, I'm a writer. You have to have written something. And someone has to have read that and said, you know what, this is really good. You should write more. You know what I mean? And I think, I, I love writing. I love being a part of that community, you know, uh, of people who are willing to, to take that journey. And, like, it's because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of lonely time. It's a lot of... Um, being productive and you know it's like you see oftentimes you'll see um, actors who haven't put that much work in you know or you'll see the actor who's put no work in but just has that thing you know what I mean and you just like man if you didn't have that thing but you do okay fair enough but like you know with writing you can't just do that you have to no matter how talented you are you have to work at it you have to get better at it all the time and uh, so i feel like writers kind of give each other like a pass of like <laughs> like oh yeah cool 
you know, we're both writers. Uh, you know, because it's it, it is a, it's a small club, and it's uh, it's not something that's easy, and we know that about what each other does. Know what I mean? You said before when you were younger that sometimes you got tired of, of certain scripts, and you know this was when you were like ten or whatever, mm. so it's a big difference. But how do you stay with something so you don't get tired of it in terms of reworking it, doing more drafts, knowing that the idea is really good, right? But it, it, I mean, it's hard. It's hard, and I I have this um, thing that as I get older is becoming more defined in who I am. Of like, there's a lack of time. Like, I don't have time uh, to waste on something that is not going to go, right? So what helps me now, it's a double-edged sword. I like to write on something I'm going to make because I know that I'm going to make it. I know it's going to continue getting better because it has to, right? Get the notes, you know, and it also has, that's the motor in it because we want to shoot this this summer. So I'll keep writing on it and getting feedback and, you know, trying to, make it as complete as humanly possible before we shoot. Downside of that is I should be writing more specs. Like, you know, everybody should be writing spec scripts all the time in order to sell them. But that has been a disappointing path to me because I have these scripts that I love, that I worked very hard on, who have, it's gotten tons of great coverage. It's, you know, they're floating out there, just floating, waiting for somebody to decide to make them, you know? And that's not as, um, for me, it's not as good a fuel as, well, I'm gonna make this. I'm going to make this in four months, so it better be good. You know what I mean? Like that, that whole of, like, I have to keep working on it if I wanna make a good product. Well, you also say you love, you're your best, you're your best Blaine when you're on set. Yeah. Which I've heard from other actors as well. Yeah. That they love being on sets, that's where all their friends are, that's what they live to do. So maybe in some sense, it's because it's you have the track record, yeah. you finished them. A lot of people don't finish them. Yeah, I, it's true. It's I'm in a I'm in a good position now where right now I'm either being paid to write a script, you know, which is, makes it very easy. I have to do this. I have to sit down and you know write, or I'm writing towards something that I want to make. Like I need to be more um, adventurous and say like, all right, I'm going to take the next four months and write something to sell. But I always get distracted back on the things that I want to make. Right. And you said something about you were told that your films aren't high concept enough. So you think it's more character driven versus plot driven? I think so. Yeah. I, I, I feel like my, uh, my voice is very dialogue uh, based, uh, very character driven. You know, like I care less about the the structure the the rules you know then I care about whether it's something I want to watch you know what I mean like I, I love the movie uh, uh, broadcast news right? broadcast news just kind of meanders you know it's like you know James Brooks right like just kind of hanging out like with these interesting characters and you get to watch you know Albert Brooks uh, you know be neurotic and uh, Holly Hunter this amazing performance but like it's all over the place I love that. I have to rein myself in from, from doing that kind of thing all the time. <laughs> when writing a story, whether you are the hero in it or you have someone else, a heroine, um, how do you take this hero or protagonist out of their comfort zone and test them? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I love that. Like, the, 
you know, uh, Weather Girl is about exactly that. You know, you take this girl who's incredibly successful and famous and, you know, you drop her into having to sleep on her brother's couch and having to wait tables and, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I love that. I love seeing, you know, people out of their element and seeing how they go. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know, like, what the process is. Is It's mostly, it's just like what kind of challenges can I give to this person? You know, how can I really get to see what they're made of? You know? Conflict. <laughs> if it's going along too well, something's gotta be messed up, you know? Right, well, I'm thinking of like the hero's journey uh -huh. and Joseph Campbell and talking about how um, they have this, this drive in them, which in some sense reminds me of what you're doing, is to make these films. But then there's going to be things that are going to get in their way right. and, and test them and uh, ultimately they've got to sort of prevail. Um, so do you see yourself as the hero in most of what you write? Even if it's a female character, there's, there's parts of you. Absolutely. I, I'm, a, I'm absolutely an actor's writer. Like, that's how I come at it. I always think about parts that I would love to play, you know? Uh, and that, that's all of them, you know? It's like Weather Girl, to me, uh, the part that Trisha O'Kelly played, uh, was a great part, a part that I wrote the speeches for, like hearing them in my brain, me saying them, you know? Uh, obviously it's metaphoric, but like I want these to be parts that actors want to sink their teeth into. I think uh, uh, Cut to the Chase has some great examples of that. We've got these two female characters that are just like so different and so interesting. I think they, they have some of the best lines and <laughs> it, it gets me excited about it. I write for, you know, for me, I, I want speech, I want them to be as excited about the things that they say as I am, if that makes sense. It does, it does. What do you think is a function of a story? Um, I, I like, um, I mean, it's all escapism, isn't it? Like, even if it's not, even if it's about looking at yourself, it's, it's about um, getting to know something else and, and being, uh, going away for a while into this story, you know? Um, and. Uh, I like that. I, I, I like, like, Cut to the Chase, to me, is total escapism entertainment. Like, what I want is people on the edge of their seat, eating popcorn, and then at the end of the movie go, Whoa! That was awesome! That's what I want. You know, it's like we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, we're not, you know, touching on, you know, deep emotional, you know, core, or talking about any issues. It's, it's just fun. Now, there are other movies that are, you know, that do that, but still, you're supposed to be going away and following something that's interesting. There are all these rules that we can follow that help make that story compelling. Uh, but I don't care how you get there. The key is for me to care. You know? I just need to give a damn about what's happening on the screen. You know? Either about the characters or the narrative or where it's happening or why it's happening. But for some reason I need to be locked in and not feel like I'm wasting two hours of my life. Can you tell us about a time you went to see a film and maybe you weren't having the best day and it completely changed you, walking out of the theater? I, I saw Pulp Fiction in New York City in uh, 1994 and I had never seen anything like that in my life and it made me never want to write again because I thought, I will never be able to do that. And uh, I think about it all the time. Still, to this day, I think about walking out of that movie and being like, just blown away with, um, with that 
cinematic experience and like you know it it, ins it inspired me even though I was intimidated like crazy it really did set something for me to work towards um, it's still out way out of reach for me I, I think it's just a fantastic movie experience but that time in my life in New York City seeing that uh, it made me want to, to write like hardcore you know we talk about outlining. Do you do you do an outline before you write? I'd rather not, but uh, usually that's required for the job. Like if I'm getting paid for it, um, they'll they'll want to know. Right these days, to get hired to write a script, you pretty much have to write the script. Like you have to write like a 35-page outline for a 90-page script. You know, turn it in before you can get hired to write the script. Um, so I, when I'm writing for other people, I do whatever it takes to make them comfortable with it, which normally involves an outline. Me, I, I just, it's kind of like, for me, it's, I'm not a musician, but I feel like it's like just jazz, you know? I feel when it's time for a change. I can feel when, you know, we need to know more about a character. And it's like, it's very, my way of working, it's very artificial to say, at this point, on page 12, we need to learn that Charlie has a secret. You know what I mean? Like, because I don't know if that secret is. I'm like, do I make it up now? Or do I wait until I get to know who Charlie is and, you know, write that in? And like, I feel like the music of it, you, I just know on page 12, maybe there's, he's, there's something he's not sharing with us. What, maybe it's this, you know? It's just way more organic and I feel like it flows. A lot of times with outlines, I'll find when I'm writing the actual script, I won't feel it going the way that the outline was. You know what I mean? So it's either like I do something false. I'm suddenly writing, for me, a lot of times, especially the rewrite process for other people's work, is taking a round peg and putting it into a square hole. It's like, here's a movie. I, I, this is an actual true story. I had written a, a film that was a uh, beach beach sport kind of romantic comedy that was set in Thailand. The note I got from the studio was, great, love it, only now it's in Bulgaria and it's Christmas. <laughs> so my rewrite was to completely and utterly change the entire, you know, scenery and what's happening, right? Round peg, square hole. And it's like, it's, it's like a Rubik's Cube kind of problem. It doesn't necessarily lead to good writing, right? Like when you're trying to problem solve instead of telling the most compelling story. That's, that's what I hate about outlining. That's why I don't like being pushed into a corner by some random decision I made three months ago when I was just trying to make people feel comfortable about what the movie was gonna be. Does that make sense? I can ramble about it for the next two hours because it's something that I, I struggle with a lot. When you finish a script, What's your process? Let's suppose you've gone through several drafts and it's for yourself. Yeah. This is not writing for someone else. And you're like, you know what, I feel good. I've, I've had a couple people look at it. Then what's your process? Well, what's, what's cool about being able to write the movie and then make it and stuff, which is my favorite, of course, is that it's never done. Like, we get a whole new process. Like, once we get a cast, we do, I get notes from the actors. I do a read-through with as much of the cast as I can pull together. Um, then I get notes then we talk about that then we get on set and we'll we'll talk about it then what's great about being in charge is that i know i'm not shakespeare i know that there's always room for improvement you know and the the key to being 
a good project manager or a good director is like being able to listen to everybody's suggestions and then make a clear, distinctive choice and then stick with that choice. You know what I mean? But like, I can't tell you how many times I've been really happy with a scene and gotten on set and the actor has said something funnier and I've just been like, well, damn it. There you go. Uh, you get the line that's going to be in the trailer and I did not write it. <laughs> I mean, I had Dave Foley in, uh, in Six Month Rule uh, from Kids in the Hall. And that guy, I mean, first of all, the only actor to ever come up to me and ask if he could do a, a different line reading. Like, most actors just change the line. And I, I certainly am not offended by that. You know, it's like I've, I've done it myself. But he came up to me and he's like, Blaine, I have a line suggestion. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> and I'm like, Dave, yes, I would. And I can go ahead and tell you that you can probably say whatever you want. <laughs> and he's hilarious. And he elevated every single one of his scenes, which were pretty funny to begin with. But like that, and I get to take credit for that because I'm the director. I let him say that. See, that's, <laughs> that's how smart I am. I cast him and then I let him be him. Uh, <laughs> Do you use any screenwriting software? Final Draft? Uh, I'm a Final Magic? Draft guy. You are? Yeah. Okay. Final Draft is, is the way to go as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so can you take us through the process of using it? I'm just curious. You know what? It's now it's just become so uh, instinctual. Like I, I, I was writing... A buddy of mine was working on a script and he asked for help and he sent it to me in Word. And I was so, it was so frustrating that I just transferred it all over, wrote it in Final Draft and then gave it back to him and said, you can put it back in Word if you want, but like, I'm going to write in my format. I just, you know, I like the way it looks. I understand the borders, you know, it's like I've been doing this for a long time now. Um, I've been probably writing scripts for over 20 years, and that's crazy to me that I've been doing anything for 20 years, but I have. And at least 18 of those has been with Final Draft, so it's just my quill and parchment, you know what I mean? Right, so what's your advice to writers who don't wanna use any type of software? They just wanna write it in pages or a Word document? I mean, I feel like it's kinda like, uh, what's the, it's, it's like method acting, you know? It's like, I really don't care how you get there, as long as you get there, you know? But um, I think it's easier with Final Draft, and it is the accepted industry standard, so you don't have to worry about uh, it looking funny, because executives, the number one thing that you need to not do, this is the biggest landmine, don't look like an amateur, especially if you're an amateur. So, like, if you're just starting out, your title page needs to look right. You need to, you know, your borders need to look right. It needs to be well-structured. It needs to not be numbered. The scenes need to not be numbered. That is a shooting script, not a selling script. You know, like all of these little things that um, you don't know you don't know, you know, are, are a red flag because a lot of readers and or development people, they're not that savvy, right? And so they're looking for a reason to own their leather chair. And if they can spot something that you've done that's amateurish, you know, they'll throw you right out. You know, there aren't many... Like, the guys that are making these decisions, are, there aren't that many of them that are, like, savvy and have been around the block a time or two, and it's like, I found a diamond in the rough. They're just finding the diamonds that other people have found. You know what I mean? They're like, he liked this, so I like it too. It's great. Because, you know, everybody's worried about getting fired. <laughs> I, I think that's accurate. Am I going to ruin my career in L.A. by this <laughs> interview here?
No, I no, think you're, you're saying that that you know it's it's good to look professional, and you some and and a lot of times you give yourself away by not knowing something yeah. that you know. And you ha yeah. nobody gives you the benefit of the doubt in this business. Like nobody, there's just too many people. There's too many people with experience, and there's too many people clawing. So, like nobody's going to be like, hey, you know, there's some typos, but man, what a story! They just won't unless you are, you know, uh, like. Cameron Crowe or you know Quentin Tarantino and turn in a script where they've changed the margins. That's the only way you get the benefit of the doubt. If they don't know you, no. They, they are looking for a reason to hate your script. That's another reason why this structure thing is so important, especially when you're first starting out, because if you make a choice to change that structure, they will not assume it was a choice. They will assume it was ignorance and they won't get through page 10. Like if nothing happens by page 15, if the inciting incident is not there, on page 15, writer doesn't know what he's doing, even if that's not true at all. I think that's, I think that's an absolute true statement. How do you choose the titles of your films? Oh, I'm terrible at titles. I'm terrible at them. That's not at all <laughs> what I'm good at. What, I, I, I'm giving Paul Osborne way too much credit in this interview, but <laughs> he named Cut to the Chase. Like, I was looking for a title and he suggested it and I was so mad. I'm just like, he just came, just like that. Like, he didn't even work on it. He's like, what about Cut to the Chase? I was looking for something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or, you know, which I got stuck in my head as like a perfect title for a movie like this. Uh, and I really like that movie. So I'm like, something like that that's fun and, you know, throwback to like 70s kind of movies. Um, and he came up with it right off the top of his head. But yeah, like again, I'm not afraid to um, use my smart friends for all of their smarts and then put my name on it. Well, like Weather Girl. Yeah, Weather Girl kind of named itself, to be honest, because it was it's a it's a kind of a coming of age story, you know. Uh, Weather Girl, and she's you know trying to be a woman instead of you know a girl who's taken care of by this, you know, she's growing up. And so it was, it was super easy, like, because the weather girl's kind of demeaning, you know, and uh, she grows up throughout the movie. That one actually, that was me. Uh, <laughs> but that came, so did, you know, Manic was a very easy thing to name. Um, Six Month Rule was not. It was awful, an awful time naming that movie. Why? I just, like, you know, like, the, the, the writing books, they'll tell you that, you know, you come up with the name the log line and the poster before you even start writing. I just, I'm not really that. I had this vague idea of what I wanted it to be. I just seen too many romantic comedies that I thought were not at all real. And I think real life is funny too. So like I wanted to make kind of a non-rom-com rom-com um, about, you know, a single guy and like all the stuff that single people do, you know, to kind of like maintain their singleness or, you know. Um, and he has all these like little, you know, things like he never spends the night because it sends the wrong message. And, you know, uh, and six month rule is kind of like the theme of his urge to stay detached, I guess. And uh, yeah, and it, it just we kind of backed our way into it. And, you know, part of it was that the number being at the beginning of the movie puts it right at the beginning of uh, VOD and uh, things like that. There, I have a lot of fil filmmaker friends right now who are dealing with that, where the distributor wants them to have a name that's A, B, C, like right at the beginning. Um, filmmaker we know is dealing with that right now, actually, where he had to change his 
name from his movie, which is like a U to an A or B, and he's looking for it. And it seems silly, but like when you don't have names, um, it can really be the difference of thousands of dollars, you know? That's really interesting. So it, it was, yeah, it was this, the six-month rule, and we changed it with the S, and then we changed it to the number six, six-month rule, and it was all business reasons. But, um, but yeah, like when I named it, I had to go back and rewrite the entire movie making six-month rule a more, you know, right. pertinent thing. But, like, you know, that's the thing. Like, I know a lot of writers who struggle with the business side and the art and, like, the combination of the two. To me, as a producer as well, I understand. Like, I want the movie out there. I want people to see it. I, I want, you know, all of those business requirements to be fulfilled. I also want the movie to have integrity. And, you know, so it's like... It's easier for me because I can balance the two of them. I'm not listening to somebody putting arbitrary rules on me. You know what I mean? Like if I thought that naming it six-month rule would ruin it and that it needed to be called, you know, the Xavier Files or something, you know, then I would have done that. But it's a I get to weigh both and make a choice as opposed to a lot of writers who are working for somebody else who are just like, Ugh. it's frustrating because I do that a lot too. I, I do write for a lot of people and there are times where I'm just like, I think this is a mistake to do this. Um, but it's your film, and I will write what you'd like. And very seldom do they listen to my experience. They have their idea, they want what they want, so I execute it for them, and then I say, it's not a good call, but okay. Well, that's being an employee in a sense, right. even if you're self-employed, yeah. That's totally right. Do. And when I write for somebody else, I am executing their vision. That's, that's what the job is. Yeah. When you finish a screenplay on spec, what's protocol? When you're done? Well, you, you finish it up, you get all your buddies to read it and tell what you think because this is like you only get one first read on that. And that's, that's hard for me because I, I like to get it out there, see what the agent thinks, you know, as soon as possible. And it's a mistake. You should hold it until it's done. Um, I, I have trouble taking that advice. But uh, you send it to your agent or producers or whoever your contacts are in that world and uh, you wait to see what they say. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, you have very little power over it once they take it. I, I have this one script that um, has been overwhelmingly uh, positive feedback and notes and has been at one agency for about eight months, you know, going through actors, big movie stars reading it or their people reading it anyways. And we'll wait for nine weeks, and then we'll hear, well, uh, Matthew McConaughey passed. But that's okay. We're going to Woody Harrelson. Okay. Nine weeks later, well, Woody Harrelson passed. But that's okay. We're going to Josh Brolin. And it just sits there, and people read it. And, it, you know, I do nothing. I just sit, and I'm happy that these agencies and these, this talent has something of mine to read. You know, maybe they'll see my name on it. <laughs> What if you don't have the agent or a manager to give it to? I mean, if you're, let's say, a new writer that doesn't have a foundation, hasn't been in L.A. that long. Yeah, well, there, there are online resources. Uh, Blacklist is one of them where you can send in the script and have it covered, have it read. Coverage is this thing where, you know, it's like a book report on your script where they, all the studios do that and they'll give you a little score, you know. Um, and you can get, you can pay people to do it professionally. Uh, but um, I would say that right now these, uh, these competitions that a lot of, like I know Austin Film Festival has a very 
prestigious one. Um, but sending your script in, if you win a couple of awards, that's something that might get some leeway in a uh, sending it to a, a, an agency. You know, like n normally I would say that almost never works. I've never heard of anybody being read because of a, a query letter. But if you have awards, maybe it would work. You know, I mean, look, there's no set way to do anything in this business. Like everything is like a twisty, turny, you know, shoots and ladders kind of thing. So you just try everything, just throw everything at it. And uh, I mean, that's how I finance movies. That's how I got all my movies done. You just try everything and see what works out and be open to something working, working out in a way that you didn't expect. If you weren't making these films, what would you be doing? You know, I, it's a good question. I, I think about that a lot. I, I, I feel like I, I always had a dream that I would be like in behind the scenes in uh, politics. Like that's kind of what that political film spin is about, is about the guy behind the guy, you know, uh, kind of working the world. Um, Grooming him. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, to, trying, to make, uh, trying to make good things happen from afar. And I, I don't know, I, I like that idea. I mean, I, I liked it a lot better about three months ago, but um, you know, it, it's, I think there's a need for it and people that are willing to fight, you know, to get in the game and um, be brave and, you know, stand for something. I, I like all that stuff. And uh, like, I try to do that on my sets. I try to do that with my films, you know, but like, we need it just in the world. We just need people that are willing to take a stand. Well, in a lot of sense, that is a director, the yeah. person that you're talking about. I don't know, it's not a spin doctor, but it's, it's somebody that's, you know, grooming and, and giving advice and right. to a politician. It, it's a little mm -hmm. more um, paternal, I guess, than, you know, most spin doctors or whatever, but it's the same thing. It's like, I'm taking care of my guy. Like, my actors, they're my guys, you know? Right. It's like, I'm not going to let them get hurt. I'm not going to let them look bad. Like, we're trying to do something bigger, and what I want is, you know, the, the raising tide raises all boats. That's what we want. We want everybody going up with us. You know what I mean? Um, that's kind of off topic, but uh, that's what that I feel like sense. the job of the director is, is like you're protecting the movie and you're protecting your team. And uh, if anything goes wrong in that, it's the director's job to either nip it in the bud, you know, or fix it. Well, so that whoever that spin doctor, more paternal spin doctor role is, my sense is if you really wanted to do it, you would have done it by now because you strike me as a type that sets out to do whatever you plan. Yeah, well, I love what I do. I really yeah. love what I do, you know? I mean, like, in, uh, like getting to tell stories and then um, having a team that you believe in that believes in you, uh, I mean, it's, it's worth its weight in gold. It really is. I, and it means a lot to me, you know? I, like, I could do this, if I could make a movie a year, I'd be a happy guy, you know? It's like doing a movie every four years is trying, but, um, you know, a lot of people haven't done four movies, you know? No, no, I no. have, and I, I, I love doing it. I, I'll do it as long as people let me. Well, you mentioned earlier that you're about to turn 40, or? I'm about to turn 41. Oh, okay, well, yeah. you're a very young 40. Hey, thank so, you. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, and you, and you recalled how, well, like, wow, I did something for 20 years. I'm sure over that course of time, you've considered doing other things, but because you love it and you're willing to stick it out, yeah. whether it's a challenge or whether it's great, um, you've realized that this is what I'm probably supposed to be doing. I kind of, you know, I, I had this moment where I was thinking about like where I am, where do I want to be, you know, I guess that's stuff that you do when you turn 40, you know, um, and I was like, you know, I'm kind of 
gone too far to throw it away. You know, like, I, I w I, I'm not really interested in changing what I do, but like now I have, you know, like I said, I have four features, I have eight produced screenplays, like people will follow me and make a movie because I've done it before. And, you know, what am I going to do? Be like, well, I'm kind of at the top of this whole indie film game, so I'm going to set off and teach history now. It, it's just, I, I feel like I'm pretty locked into this. And, uh, you know, I, I like it, and uh, I, I keep working and, you know, doing new things. I'm doing a, you know, a, a play this summer that will be oh. some musical, so that's new for me. Nice. But Here like, in you LA? Know, Sorry. No, it, it's, a, it's in Louisiana, you know, at this equity house down there, but, Great. like, I have not done a musical since I was, you know, nine years old. So it, I love doing new things and like challenging myself and like uh, trying to keep the art popping and do things that scare me, you know? Yeah, I think that's really important. Because, I think so too. Yeah, and, and with that comes some low times and then some really high times because those lows are so bad. And, yeah. then, and then when stuff works, you go, it was worth it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, and, you know, I have friends who don't understand my life at all, you know, because the peaks are so high and the, the valleys are very low, but, like, the peaks are great, man. Like, I tell you what, like, standing, you know, being in Park City, standing next to Mark Harmon, you know, at a film festival or, that's like, cool. being in the middle of Texas making a movie with Sam Shepard, you know, or, like, uh wearing a tuxedo at a red carpet event in a movie palace that was built in 1925 for Cut to the Chase in Shreveport, Louisiana. I mean, that stuff is, tried, my bucket list is pretty good. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's got its downsides too, but like, I, I really like the ride. And with that, if someone were to take that snapshot of that tuxedo moment on the red carpet, they probably would think, wow, this guy's, this is cool. Like, yeah. but they don't see all the hard work that got right. you to that point and the crowdfunding. How, how long was the campaign? Uh, what is it, three months normally, something like that? Three months, okay. So all that that took to yeah. get that money, plus you, you said it was, you had some extra money. Oh yeah, then uh, yeah. was raising money mm -hmm. from that point, from the time that we got the Kickstarter money all the way until I raised more money for distribution three weeks ago. Right, so if you were to take that snapshot, so it's a movie of Blaine yeah. Weaver's life. Yeah. And then you backtrack though, and there was a lot of at the computer alone yeah. without the wine, with the coffee. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I mean, that, what's funny is, is like that's kind of our reality now, isn't it? You know, with like the Facebook and the Instagram and the Twitter, is like I show people what I want them to see, you know, and not exactly what, like it's just I'm marketing me like I market my films. And I think it's very important, and I think that a lot of filmmakers don't do it to their detriment. Um, because we mentioned earlier the brand, my brand, you know, uh, I feel like it has a lot to do with why people will buy the movie, you know, will show up for the Q and A, will, you know, and you gotta keep that marketing going as well. I, a friend of mine runs a theater, you know, and uh, we do very much the same thing, you know. He's a theater guy, you know. I'm mostly in film, but like we're doing the same thing all the time. We're, you know telling people what our company is, what it stands for, what kind of work we're doing, and why you should want to be a part of it. You know what I mean? And like, I know filmmakers who are just like, I don't know how you raise money. Ah. I'm like, well, if you try and you learn, then you have the power. Otherwise, you have to find somebody with power and ask them, you know, 
for permission. If you take it yourself, you know, I don't have to ask for permission for anyone, you know? And it's a, it's a great place to be as, as, as far as art goes. Why do you think a lot of filmmakers don't want to do it? Just because it's time consuming, it's scary? Yes, I think, I think absolutely. I mean, it's, and it's kind of gross, you know? It's like, there's lots of stuff that, that goes into, you know, dealing with the financing that um, is not Fonzie, you know? Like there's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, Fonzie shows up, I, you know, I did this work uh, with an actor once and um, I had just done a Kickstarter kind of thing and I was, you know, and he's just like, man, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, you know, put myself out there and ask for money and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, the good thing is if I make a movie, nobody remembers that I bugged them on Facebook. You know, they just remember, hey, I gave five bucks to this guy. There's, there's my movie, you know? But people are really reluctant to um, go out on a limb. They, everybody wants to be the sure thing, you know? Um, and I just, it, it really is hard. When, you, when you're seeking money, everybody says no until they don't. You know, and that's really what it is. But like that freedom, that being able to be the person who, like I put this financing together, you know, this is my baby. So I don't have to listen to a studio who says, actually Blaine, we're going with somebody who's with CAA and is a little hotter than you right now for this directing gig. Um, thanks a lot for the script. And they can do that. They can just, you know, push me right out the door. But uh, nobody pushes baby in the corner. You know what I mean? I messed that line up. But anyways, uh, I, I like it. I like it. And uh, I just hope that uh, financiers keep believing in me. And just real quickly, what is the Fonzie analogy? I love this. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, I, I, we were talking earlier about uh, L.A. versus New York. And I feel like L.A. is a very Fonzie culture. They want, you know, somebody to come in and just, I didn't practice at all. I haven't had time to look at this, but I'm just really cool. I'm actually, I might be cooler than you are, you know? And New York, they really want the kind of nerdy, you know, I've been preparing for this meeting for six months. You know, they, they want to know that you've got it together and that you take it seriously. I just think it's a funny combo. And I have, I mean, I, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with some really great actors who, uh, you know, can do both, you know, or make it look easy breezy just pop in like Patrick J Adams is a great example he, he's on suits now and I've done two movies with Patrick and he's totally fonzied out and then in his hotel room the night before he works he is Marlon Brando and that stuff practicing you know getting ready but then everything's just as easy breezy and you know natural as could possibly be you know I love that analogy yeah it's great any millennials out there, watch Happy Days to see <laughs> yeah, who Fonzie is, man, and you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> Fonzie, who, I don't get it. Grew up on that All show. Right. Okay. <laughs> Blaine, you're a writer, director, actor, producer. Which of these would you say is your first passion? Well, my first passion was acting. That's how I came to all this. I, I love, you know, dropping in the middle of it and, and, you know, being able to create a character and whatnot. But, like... You know, I, it's tough to call. I love writing for other people. I love acting for other people. But, like, I love directing my things because I get to build this team. I get to, you know, find talent to elevate the project. And, you know, a lot of people think it's weird that I oftentimes will act and direct at the same time. To me, that's how I came to it to begin with, you know, it was, like, doing plays and directing them, you know, when I was in junior high. You know, I'm acting and then stopping and being like, all right, let's do this, blah, blah, blah. 
And it's the same way now. Like I'm a kid in a candy store, you know, especially I get to choose the actor standing across from me. I, you know, I've worked with uh, Patrick Day twice, you know, two movies in a row. We, we worked together and we worked together great. So I, I put him in a movie for as long as he'll let me, you know, and like I got to do a six month rule with Natalie Morales, who's like one of my best friends now. And like the whole thing of we got to fall in love and break up and like we as actors went through that together. And as a director, I collaborated with this fantastic actress to give this great performance, you know. I, I love being in the middle of all of it. Um, so, yeah, all of it, I guess. <laughs> well, I think, too, the criticism of, of an actor also making their own film isn't always warranted because sometimes that's the only way that they can keep working. And yeah. I think that's a lack of a lot of actors. They yeah. don't want to do that. Well, I mean, the great thing is, is like, I mean, who cares? I, like, if that's what I want to do, and I go out and raise the money, and then I hire the people, and then I make a good movie, you know, I, like, a six-month rule, I was more self-conscious about it, because it was a bigger budget, and um, I don't know, I, I guess it was just like, I didn't want to be that narcissistic, you know, actor who built a movie around himself acting. Um, but now I'm like, you know, I'm a good actor, and uh, especially with Cut to the Chase, it was a, you know, smart business move because it was a $100,000 movie and it would have been way more expensive to hire somebody and house them and pay them overtime. I didn't get any overtime on this movie. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, I'm at this point where I'm like, I like, I want to do the projects I want to do. And like the next one uh, is a horror film that I'm not in. Um, but if I decide to write myself part in, guess there what? There you go. I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I love it though. It's like, this is, you know, Mark Harmon, when I was doing Weather Girl, uh, pulled me aside and he's like, this is it right here. This is the fun. This is the enjoyment. I know you're stressed out. I know you're, you know, you really want this to be good, but you need to enjoy this while you're doing it. And like, I try to remember that. It's very hard to remember that when you're stressed out and you have all this pressure on it. But like, I'm, I'm getting better at that of like, this is it. I'm going to make the movie I want to make. You know, I'm not going to compromise because of some idea of what somebody over there might think. Um, yeah, I, I'm too confident in the people that I pulled together uh, to worry about something like that. And, you know, it's like, like you said, the best thing about it is seeing these movies that, like, me and my collaborators have made and being like, yeah, that's what I did in 2008, that's what I did in 2011, and this is what I did in 2015. That's how I spent those years, and I think that's legit. Right, instead of waiting for someone to cast you, which I know a lot of talented people wait around in this town. Sure. They get fed up. So you went out and did it. Now, going back to that with Mark Harmon, what was going on at the time when he said that to you? It was, I believe it was day one on Weather Girl, and he was shooting the first day, and we had a sound stage. I'd never had a sound stage. My, my buddy Brandon, who uh, was a producer on that film, and you know, we bought the house together, and we did theater together when we were both seven years old. Um, he was on set, and I, I went over to him, and I was kind of giving Harmon a little tour of the sound stage. And I turned to Brandon, and I'm like, do you think anybody knows that I have no idea what I'm doing right now? <laughs> and he's like, you're doing great. Just keep going. But it was stressy. You know, it was a stressy day. We had, um, we had this huge setup with the biggest actors in the movie, and I was a little stressed out. And, but he, he, 
he's a very kind man and he you know he he kind of saw that I was I was more stressed than I was having a ball and uh, he was right he was right I, I try to remember that that's great so you can still see it in your you can still see that oh absolutely yeah uh-huh Absolutely. And he's awesome, too. Like, he's way cooler than me. So, like, you know, having uh, Special Agent Gibbs give you life advice, you pay attention.